Welcome to Sivako, The Road to Avatar. I am Sean Alexander and I will be your guide to the world of Pandora and beyond. And today I have a very special guest with me. Uh, special guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Matt Packer and I'm a freelance business and finance writer and Avatar geek. And I don't think anything else uh, about me is particularly important at this stage. <laughs> Look, it's all based on like how avatar geeky you are at this point now, isn't yeah. it? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what so, it all comes down to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the most important thing. And that's the reason we we sort of had a sort of discussion and you wanted to come on the podcast as well. Yep, yep. <laughs> I mean, I, I've been doing other bits of um, avatar fanship uh, lately in the sense that... Uh, uh, I've been doing interviews for Kelutral, um, the uh, the language, uh, the, the Navi language uh, dudes, and they've um, you know they asked me to uh, uh, to do interviews with some of their members and some of their um, you know associates. So I've done three of those. I've got there two two of them are out there, and one of them's coming up at some point. Very exciting. Uh, I'll make sure to put some uh, some links into the show notes so uh, people can have a little. Uh little gander at that so as i do with all my guests i have a few questions for you and the first of which is when did you first see avatar i first saw avatar in i think it was mid january of 2010 um i couldn't see it straight away because i had a really busy work period going up to the christmas and then a really busy christmas and then a really busy work period right after christmas so i kind of you know didn't get around to it as as um as quickly as I wanted to, but I was psyched about it. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I was absolutely, you know, buzzing about it and buzzing about seeing it. Um, and uh, I saw it at, uh, I finally got around to it at my local view uh, multiplex. And it was a fairly, you know, sort of a mid-sized auditorium um, with a standard size screen. Uh, and it was in 3D. I was in the second row and it was you know total head removal for you know three hours <laughs> so you know the first i think by that stage it was um uh it was really kind of taking off there were like loads of news reports about how well it was doing box office wise so i was kind of catching it when it was really starting to you know turn into a proper rocket ship and um the first thing that i really remember um when I, when I kind of think back to that first time i saw it um was that i've got no memory of there being any frame to the screen um if that makes sense i mean i just felt like i was kind of in it you know and it happened very that that, that happened that that sort of you know psychological you know sort of i don't know kind of boundary crossing or whatever it was that happened very very quickly it was in literally the first you know, thirty seconds of the film, um, I just thought, "Wow, uh, I'm I'm in this thing." <laughs> I've got a feeling like the second row probably helps with that as well. Yeah. In terms yeah. of like, you know, you're, you're <laughs> if, if I'm right in thinking, most second rows are tilted back slightly so you can get the whole screen in your vision, yeah. and yeah. basically nothing else is. You, you're only looking at screen. There's no walls, no lights. <laughs> yeah. Sort of like I've always used to see like an exit light. Um, yeah, but there's been a few times where I've sat so close where it is just like sensory overload. I think I did it for Force Awakens, and that that really right. helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you can't go and see the movie on an enormous screen, then you know, obviously, the second row is a pretty good place to be. Um, 
so yeah it was uh it was phenomenal um yeah it was it was just um you know uh, the 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 emotional roller coaster and um the the, the euphoria you know it, i i just found i just found the whole experience completely um i mean it's still it's still to this day you know the, the, the first time i saw avatar is still to this day my favorite um experience of being in uh, a movie theater um it was just it just completely overwhelming uh, on on uh, every level, really. Awesome. I was going to actually ask because you saw it a little bit later, you know, yeah. so about like a month after it had released. Yeah. What was it like in in terms of like how many people were in the screen? Do you remember? Uh, it's it's difficult to say because um, uh, you know, like once I got into this thing, I, I could barely even I could barely even remember my own name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, uh, but I, th- I think I think it was it was sort of it was reasonably well um, attended. Um, uh, but you know there was there was a whole bunch going on behind me that that I didn't really care about. You know it was <laughs> I, I was kind of detached from reality after a certain time. So um, yeah, it was uh, it, it was it was an interesting it was an interesting time to see it actually because yeah it had been out for about a month and uh, uh, and then there, you know you do have that kind of thought in the back of your mind of you know oh this is this is quite interesting i'm seeing all these news news reports indicating that jim cameron is has gone and done it again um and you know that but there is this thing in the back of your mind going you know is it is it really up to all that and then you know you sort of sit down in front of the thing and you go yep (laughs) yeah don't don't bet against him anymore honestly i I feel like i repeat that so often it is a silly thing to do yeah so, is there a particular moment from the film that stands out to you still? Gosh, uh, I mean, that's there's a that's a crowded field. Um, I really love um, the part where Jake first wakes up in his avatar body, and um, I'm going to be going into that a little bit in um, some of the some of the stuff I've got to say later. But um, his first baby step into the world that he decides that he really belongs in, you know um and that's uh you know it's it's a really kind of uh a joyful moment and when he kind of springs out of the lab and he's um running over the the kind of local you know they've got that kind of local garden area uh, and you know, it's it's really uh you can kind of feel that rush of adrenaline that he's feeling yeah definitely and i think that's might be the most uh chosen moment right now I have right. to start keeping a tally. I'm gonna to have to uh, go back over my episodes and see what the tally looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I can't blame anyone. That is a fantastic moment, and obviously, it's because it's that first introduction into sort of the <laughs> of what it's like being in that avatar yeah. body. Yeah, and it's it's where you get the the it's the first kind of hint of the perception flip that the film pulls as well, um, because it initially introduces you to. Um, Pandora is a kind of a threatening place uh, and you know I mean when, when the uh, shuttle first comes down uh, to, to Hell's Gate um, everything is kind of in this washed out colour palette everything looks really grey and, and you've got you know Quaritch delivering his address and giving everybody the heebie-jeebies about how nasty um, this <laughs> this world is um, and uh, and you know it and then this is your first kind of trip into what Pandora is actually like if you try and experience it from the people who 
who live there and and, and love it you know and it, it, it's um uh, and i love that bit where he bites into that fruit you know grace chucks him that that fruit and he bites into it and and you know all the juice kind of runs down his chin and everything and it's it's like so visceral um and there's something kind of i don't know there's something kind of mythic about that you know um so he's he's kind of taking this kind of big juicy bite of his of his new life mm. <laughs> that's a great way to put it i love that and uh finally what is your excitement level for the way of water oh goodness <laughs> it's um i've i've you know ever since i walked out of that first showing that i ever saw of avatar um i mean that you know my, my my mind kind of raced away um in the aftermath of watching the film for the first time thinking about all the things that they could do with that world and um you know all all of the, the the directions they could go in you know what kind of new environments we could see and and you know, I, I was i was my mind was racing with thoughts about what you know surely jake and natiri are going to have kids and all of this sort of stuff and you know now we've heard little bits of advanced publicity saying oh we're going to go here and yes jake and natiri do have kids and they they look like this and da, 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 da. and and it's just you know i i, I think it's going to be it's going to be like a kind of a sense of um you know, like a homecoming in a, in a way. <laughs> I've, I've never been, I've never been so hyped for a film ever, you know, as I am about the way of water. Um, there's just nothing, nothing even gets close to the, the hype levels that I've got and, and I've had for the past 13 years. <laughs> I think it's interesting because obviously uh, with, with the 13 year gap as well, it is sort of like the first time, like a generation are experiencing this sort of like, Oh, we saw our we had it the first time round, and now we're we're getting our legacy sequel of, of sorts in a way. Yeah, and because obviously people, you know, there was a generation who have had that with their Star Wars or their various other <laughs> various other media's. But yeah, I feel like Avatar is the first example, certainly for a new generation who are experiencing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because the the first one had, um, you know, I mean, Jim Cameron is quite you know, quite famously said that, that the first one had a, an 8 to 80 um, audience range. And that means that, that there's there's actually a huge pool um, out there of people who will be very, very curious about this. Um, and the fact that, I think the fact that they've waited 13 years just makes it more special. Um, I mean, it's interesting, I, I, I saw that, that, uh, that the, when, when the wave of water comes out, um, the the gap between Avatar and the Way of Water will be only three years shorter than the gap between the Return of the Jedi and um, and the Phantom Menace, you know. So it's uh, it, it's it's interesting that you know that it, sometimes it is it's good to let things subside for a little bit. But I really do like the idea that we're going to get you know one every two years. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spoke about this on a um, previous. Uh, episode um about how it feels like avatar the first one the one in 09 felt like it was the sort of prequel like the setup and this means that way of water onwards is all the juicy stuff that we're actually waiting for yeah absolutely i, th I think that the, the the great thing about it is that the, it, you know the the avatar 09 um did an awful has done an awful lot of groundwork and there's going to be a lot of things that the sequels aren't necessarily going to have to bother with in terms of explaining you know that it's almost like you can kind of kick straight into 
a story uh, and I'm fascinated by um, you know how how large the story is going to be um, I, I'm, I'm you know very intrigued about that I'm, I'm very intrigued about the idea that uh, we've got a family type situation uh, I'm wondering whether it's going to be a little bit like the Starks uh, in Game of Thrones you know whether they're all going to get split up and have their own kind of journeys um, <laughs> it's 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 just so exciting um and i really like the idea that it's uh it's gonna you know well certainly the um uh the the way of water and, and avatar 3 are both you know they're both going to have jim cameron's creative uh imprint uh, on them you know we're not there's there's obviously said that he might not do um four and five um but i get the feeling that he will <laughs> and I, i'm fascinated by that as a kind of you know it's kind of an authorial project it's uh it's something that he's doing it, it, I, I always thought that the first one was a, a kind of um a passion project and it's something that it it looks and feels and behaves like the work of someone who really really cared um about what he was doing and was really really into it and if we're going to get that you know times two certainly with um you know the way of water and, and avatar three and and then you know potentially you know again with with four and five um it's going to stand as a, a magnum opus um i really do believe that um and i mean that 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 kind of you know it's almost you know if he does hand over the reins for four and five um uh i, I guess that he'll be keeping a very you know sort of tight um watch on on whoever he gets to you know direct those ones if he chooses to to kind of pass on the reins so I think that, um, yeah, re regardless of whether he does, you know, uh, four and five or, or, or passes them on, um, I think that it's it will be his it will be his magnum opus. Um, that's really exciting. It really is. I feel like uh, <laughs> we're ready for this new Jim Jim Cameron era. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I think people are, have been sort of clamouring for it as well. Uh, yeah, based on what we've had in terms of blockbuster cinema in the recent years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he'll end up doing four. I can't see him not. Yeah, I mean, he was really enthusiastic. If you read the Empire interview, um, he was hyper enthusiastic about that one. Uh, said that it's, uh, you know, it's a real, a real corker. Um, and uh, you know, I, 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 I think uh, it's the sort of thing he just, he just won't be able to help himself. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, if he does four, why is he? Why wouldn't he do? Why five? would he? Why would he hand over five? That's exactly yeah, it. It would you know seem I mean? a little brute <laughs> not to. At that point. Yeah, yeah. It would just, it would just be bizarre, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I hope he, I hope he stays the, the, the whole, the whole course. Um, it would be, it would be fascinating. And also, you know, what better way to, um, uh, to kind of cuss down the detractors who've been mithering on for the best part of a decade. <laughs> <laughs> than to you know to 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 do uh, all four of the sequels and then you know have them all uh, uh, go to um, you know huge levels of success. And uh, it's interesting that you're talking about detractors because uh, one of the the topic we're actually talking about today is uh, about an influence of avatars. And now, obviously, Avatar has a lot of influences that people talk about. And people, one of the main things that people use as a detraction of Avatar is that it is too much like similar certain films. Uh, the the ones that are often cited are the ones like Pocahontas, Fern Gully, and Dancing with Wolves. We are, however, talking about a different film, which uh, you brought to me as a 
good example of some something he's taken a uh, taken advantage of, taken some inspiration from. And uh, yeah, would you like to uh, introduce the film we're going to be talking about today? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, what I'm going to deliver is it's sort of in um, it's sort of in two parts, I guess. Um, so uh, the main the main meat uh, of the discussion is going to be about um, the Emerald Forest, which is a 1985 film by John Borman. And it's absolutely beautiful to look at. Uh, and it's um, it's a story about the effects of heavy industry on um, indigenous peoples. And um, uh, what I'm going to do, first of all, shall I, shall I kind of go into um, the, the, you know, because I've got pages and pages of stuff <laughs> to, to expound. Um, so uh, I think, you know, m- maybe what I'll do is I'll start with um, the, the whole uh, notion of James Cameron as an artist who is influenced by stuff. Cool. Yeah. So um, I think probably the, the best place to start with this, because this is in, I guess, it's, I guess it's almost in, in three parts, really. So uh, what I'd first like to talk about is James Cameron as an artist who is influenced by stuff. And then go into some of the um, influences that have contributed to Avatar and then go into much more depth about the Emerald Forest. So uh, to take those uh, in turn, um, yes, James Cameron is an artist who is influenced by stuff. <laughs> yeah, that, that's 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 a fact. Um, uh, I mean, if you look at the Terminator it's fairly well known that Cameron drew on influences ranging from Halloween uh, and old episodes of The Outer Limits um, to Walter Hill's The Driver with Mad Max to The Road Warrior inspiring the future war scenes. Um, if you look at Aliens, um, you know, the big story here is that Cameron gave every member of the cast a copy of Robert A. Heinlein's military science fiction novel Starship Troopers. Uh, and Aliens is perfectly readable as a kind of an unofficial adaptation of that book years before the brilliant Paul Verhoeven take, uh, as well as an exercise in following the template of Ridley Scott's Alien to the letter, pretty much right down to, you know, Ripley having to bail out of a structure that's about to explode uh, in the final stretch. Um, then if you go on to the Abyss, uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of close encounters in there, uh, mashed up with a kind of a Tom Clancy style techno thriller. Uh, with Jim taking a leaf out of the Stargate sequence from 2001 uh, as Ed Harris's character Bud Brigman uh, enters the alien's underwater lair. Um, there's a fair bit of E.T. floating around in, in that particular chunk of the film too. Um, if we get on to Terminator 2 Judgment Day, uh, what really stands out here is that T2 is a very close revisitation uh, of the plot template from, from T1. Uh, essentially, it's a kind of a lavish big budget remake uh, of the first film much in the same way that aliens follows alien uh, with all the elements uh, established in t1 basically amped up uh, with the notable exception of the motel room love scene um, which uh, i assume didn't you know something like that didn't make it through for uh, reasons of wanting to reach a younger audience um, then true lies uh, is an outright remake uh, and what happened here was that arnold schwarzenegger had seen and was incredibly impressed by the uh, French espionage comedy uh, La Totale, and he brought it to Cameron and said, you know, I think we can do something with this, uh, or I think we can do something with this. 
and Jim completely went for it. Uh, and I've also read that Cameron was partially inspired by the Coens in his decision to be a bit more overtly stylized with his camera. Then we go on to Titanic, and I'd say that you know similar rules apply uh, in the sense that um, Titanic was heavily inspired by the 1958 Roy Ward Baker film uh, A Night to Remember, which uh, you know I mean, and, and so you know if not an outright remake, um, uh, Titanic is certainly a kind of a big budget lavish exercise in channeling uh, the sorts of beats and emotional resonances that made A Night to Remember uh, work. Um, and then, uh, you know, of course, we've got uh, uh, loads of influence from The Shining coming in uh, when, when the ship starts to collapse, you know, and uh, we've got the, the, the kind of the, uh, you know, Kate and Leo uh, charging down flooded collapsing corridors uh, and all that sort of stuff. So what all of this demonstrates is that uh, James Cameron is basically a sponge. You know, for the most part, he utilizes his influences in an extremely... Uh, brazen, extremely obvious, and yet extremely unabashed fashion. Um, but having said that, I think it's equally obvious uh, and absolutely clear that once he's harnessed these influences uh, and he's kind of filtered them through the, the prism of his own sensibilities and stylistic inflections and his worldview and his personal obsessions and fascinations, uh, what comes out of the production line on the other end is 100% recognisably the work of James Cameron. Um, so all of the various, you know, sort of traits and textures that comprise his authorial imprint, uh, in the end, govern and inform how his influences are absorbed and digested and moulded into something new. So now we get into Avatar, um, and uh, it doesn't take an awful lot of digging around in this film to see that, you know, the, its scheme of influences is an order of magnitude uh, greater than anything you see in in Jim's previous film films. And um, this ties into something that I've thought about Avatar for a long, long time, which is that it, it, it's in fact an extremely complex film disguised as an extremely simple one. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the three influences that obviously, uh, you know, have been most frequently claimed for Avatar, often in an unkind or disparaging way, are Fern Gully and Pocahontas and, and most significantly of all Dances with Wolves. And of course, there are elements and, uh, you know, sort of tones from uh, each of those in Cameron's film. But when you really lift up the rug and examine the film in detail, you find very quickly that it's teeming with influences that collectively impart a very kind of specific framework of meanings. Um, and I thought it'd be a cool exercise to just sort of tease out uh, from the film a kind of a, a, you know, rundown of those, you know, multiple influences um, to give people an idea of how the film's narrative, thematic and, and polemical engines work. So, first and foremost, I'd say, Aliens looms very large. Um, you know, I, I, Avatar is essentially an inverted Aliens, uh, which asks and answers the question, what if we gave the xenomorphs a language and culture and made them defenders of the natural world and encouraged the audience to see the story from their perspective? Um, you know, maybe we wouldn't be so keen perhaps to, to you know, to blow them away or, or seeing them be blown away. You know, that, that's that's really the kind of, um, you know, I think I think Aliens is an enormous, um, uh, uh, you know, influence on, on, on the movie. Then we've got Silent Running, uh, Douglas Trumbull's 1972 e ecological science fiction film about a, bo a botanist on a spacecraft containing Earth's last remaining plots of forest uh, in a set of geodesic domes. 
um, and the lead character Freeman Lowell, uh, played by Bruce Dern, is is very much a kind of a, a forerunner of Grace, Grace Augustine, I would say. Uh, also on environmental turf, uh, Studio Ghibli's Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind and Princess Mononoke, uh, which as well as being um, science fiction and fantasy uh, adventures, are environmental or ecological fables uh, or message movies. Uh, leading on from Studio Ghibli, we have literally any other anime in the mech genre. <laughs> <laughs> he loves a mech suit. He honestly. loves the mech stuff. He absolutely loves the mech stuff. I I, I swear uh, that once upon a time I read an interview where he talked about how the uh, the bridge sequence in True Lies, which is amazing, was um, partially inspired by Pat Labor. Uh, and uh, I think it was a, in, in a magazine interview uh, just ages ago, and, and, and you know, so I can't track it down on the internet because it, you know, never made it online. But um, you know, you can you can tell that that, that you know that, that Cameron is just a major major mech head, <laughs> you know, when it comes to his anime. Um, uh, I mean, when you you know, it's, it, it's a it, mech is a clear massive inspiration for Avatar's vehicle uh, tech and and the amp suits. Um, you know, it, it's it's kind of right through it, really. Then I'd say the novel Starship Troopers is also uh, a key influence on Avatar as well as Aliens. Um, and another novel that I think looms pretty large is Gulliver's Travels um, by Jonathan Swift, which you know. Uh, I, I would kind of say is a, a huge background influence, especially the part of the book where Gulliver visits the land of uh, Brobdingnag, where everything around him uh, looks kind of like what he remembers from his own world, only it's, you know, all on this massively outsized scale, uh, just as Pandora's flora and fauna uh, and its terrain uh, appear to Jake. Um, and then, you know, obviously you've got cyberpunk, uh, most specifically Total Recall uh, and The Matrix, that idea of using technology to jack into other experiences, um, except instead of jacking into fake memories like Doug Quaid does in Total Recall, uh, or a computer simulated world like Thomas Anderson does in uh, in The Matrix, uh, Jake is jacking into another body that provides the uh, enlightening experiences. Um, and uh, you know that there's there's I think there's also a touch of Blade Runner too when you look at the collector's edition uh, and you've got the early scenes where it kind of sets up. Uh, the, the the type of earth that Jake came from, um, that's very much um, visually and uh, you know influenced by by Blade Runner. Um, King Kong is a major presence, I would say. Uh, that idea of um, a journey to a lush uh, and exotic jungle environment populated with outlandish creatures, um, you know, the creature effects are very strongly informed by the values of King Kong's Willis O'Brien, who essentially. Uh, is the godfather of creature effects. Uh, and of course, there's an explicit King Kong reference, which is that the ship uh, in King Kong is called the Venture. And the uh, the main space cruiser in Avatar that takes Jake to Pandora is the ISV Venture Star. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, uh, then we've got Apocalypse Now, uh, which I think is a massive visual and thematic influence on Avatar's action sequences, uh, specifically the attack on Home Tree and the final battle. Um, then we're getting into Gaia theory uh, via the writings of, and teachings of James Lovelock, who died recently. Um, and Lovelock developed and postulated the concepts that Earth is a self-regulating organism in its own right uh, that's comprised of a vast array of primary, secondary and tertiary ecosystems that act like organs in the Earth organism. 
Um, then there's the Mars novels of Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, starring displaced Confederate veteran John Carter, uh, who's uh, spirited away to Mars while prospecting and comes into contact with a race of exceedingly tall aliens. So he's kind of a fish out of water who eventually learns to master the environment in which he's been transported. And then last but not least, we have Frankenstein. Um, one of my favourite scenes in Avatar, which I talked about earlier, is where uh, Jim takes a brief but powerful turn into sci-fi horror territory, and that's when we see Jake waking up in his Avatar body for the first time. And there's this sense that all may not be quite well uh, as he rises from the gurney and knocks over medical equipment and alarms the clinicians who are around him. You know, the whole moment plays out like a kind of a Frankenstein resurrection scene, which, you know, totally works because... You know, this this avatar body lumbering around is a creature that eventually moves beyond its creator's control. Um, so, you know, I don't think that any of that is accidental. Um, now, what all of this demonstrates is that Avatar is basically this giant melting pot of influences imbued with an actually quite complex web of meanings. Uh, and that's why, to me, uh, the dances with wolves comparisons are so absurdly simple minded. <laughs> I, I like that I don't have to be the one who has to say it. Um, <laughs> because this is, uh, as an Avatar podcast, this is the thing I hear the most is, yeah. oh, but it's just dances with wolves, but they're blue. And, yeah. <laughs> and I, I yeah. think it's such like a, a simple way of putting it. And it's like the most like base level i don't want to read any yeah. deeper into a the film a absolutely absolutely it's almost like something that people set up for themselves to prevent themselves from having to use their brains um i think that's really a kind of a, a an issue you know yeah i mean yes it is it's an outer space riff on the idea uh of an outsider falling in with a tribe and becoming one with them uh, as seen in dances and other films such as, you know, A Man Called Horse and so on. But the, the this is the crucial thing. The idea that the experience of watching Avatar is identical to the experience of watching Dances with Wolves is absolutely and completely preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> you, you put it in kind of language that I've heard before. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is it is just total and utter nonsense. Um, the films are very aesthetically different. They are very differently made. But over and above all that, I'd say that they're very, very different concerns at heart. So, you know, to pick out that one structural element as a kind of a similarity and say that it applies across the whole of Avatar is, in my view the height of laziness um you know all it tells me is that you're you know you're reasonably good at you know matching pairs type board games uh, and that's about it <laughs> <laughs> that's such a great comparison just, oh I've, I've figured out oh this is the same as this thing and yeah I... yeah and, and <laughs> job done you yeah know, that, that's it i don't have to think about this anymore you know i don't have to think about this in any greater depth anymore um and yeah you know i think that to focus or fixate uh, on the dances with wolves elements, the exclusion of all else, and think that makes you really sort of edgy and clever, is essentially to focus on the scaffolding without seeing the skyscraper. You know, you're just missing whole huge chunks of what motivated Jim Cameron to make the film. 
Which brings us finally, <laughs> in a roundabout kind of fashion, to John Borman's 1985 film, The Emerald Forest. Now, um, I really think that this film is the single biggest influence on the substance and the soul of Avatar. Uh, in other words, it's the influence that shaped the skyscraper rather than the scaffolding. Um, it's an extremely lush and visually beautiful film. Uh, which should come as no surprise from uh, the guy who made, by, by 1985, John Borman had already made Point Blank, Hell in the Pacific, which is an amazing film that hardly anybody ever talks about anymore, and I just think it's scandalous. Um, Deliverance, uh, the delightfully strange Zardoz, uh, and the tremendous Arthurian retelling Excalibur. Uh, and the important thing about the Emerald Forest uh, in the context of Avatar is that it's a handy bit of evidence to have around when you hear people in a sometimes, you know, sort of flattering way describe Avatar as pure escapism. Uh, no, it's not. You know, I've always thought that what Avatar does so effectively is to use the language of blockbuster filmmaking as a kind of um, lecture platform to thrash out and work through a set of ideas about what human beings are really doing on our own world to other human beings. Uh, and the Emerald Forest is key to that. So um, I'm going to kind of, you know, go through the movie um, pretty much from um, beginning to end uh, and kind of name, you know, sort of nod at, every so often I'll kind of like nod at the bits that um, I think have resonances to, to Avatar. So, Borman's film um, concerns an American man called Bill Markham, uh, played by Powers Booth, uh, who's the architect and chief engineer of a hydroelectric dam project in Brazil. And he's living in a well-appointed high-rise in an unnamed city outside the Amazon rainforest, but close enough uh, for commuting into it. Um, Markham is accompanied by his wife, Jean, played by Meg Foster, uh, his daughter, Heather, played by Yara Vanu, and seven-year-old son Tommy, played by uh, played at that age by William Rodriguez, and we open with a helicopter shot that shows us where the city is situated in relation to the forest. And in short order, that gives us that give that gives way to another chopper shot of the of the family snaking into the jungle in their car uh, on a dusty road of red earth. We then cut to a car-mounted shot, uh, putting us in the position of the family pulling into a large and immediately, obviously, man-made clearing, uh, completely denuded of foliage and smoothed over. So the whole area feels like a pit of red earth, but it's been squared off all around the edges, and uh, you know, the overlooking jungle slopes have been stripped bare. Uh, we're told in anticipation of an urban development that will live next door to the massive dam intended for the site. Um, and the, the whole panorama feels like a violation of the natural environment. And, you know, where once there were trees, there are bright yellow bulldozers toing and froing, surrounded by workers in hard hats. Uh, and if this is starting to remind you of the enormous open cast mine gouged into the surface of Pandora that we see when Jake arrives there early in the first act of Avatar, feel free to award yourself several points. <laughs> So this is the counter paradise that Markham and his company have created and uh, bulldozers basically pushing and digging up trees and ripping them down with chains all around him and his family. Um, young Tommy is very excited by the spectacle um, and in a note of what will prove to be extremely bitter irony, uh, Markham nods to one of the bulldozers and tells his son, one of these days when you get a little older, I'll teach you how to drive one of those. 
Um, now, as the family are having a picnic during a work break, Tommy strays into the very edge of the jungle and encounters silent members of an indigenous tribe who we later find out are called the Invisible People. Um, Bill follows after him, and as he heads into the foliage, a brightly fletched arrow thuds into a tree trunk right next to him, signalling the moment when Tommy disappears. And if that arrow reminds you of the brightly coloured arrows protruding from the wheel of a mining vehicle when Jake rolls into Hell's Gate uh, in Avatar, award yourself several more points. Um, we cut to the whole family uh, and a group of workers uh, searching for Tommy, and as Bill makes it to the top of a ridge, uh, the camera cranes up uh, for a reveal of the vast expanse of jungle into which we know Tommy has now vanished. We then pick things up ten years later, and the first thing that we see is that Markham's Dam is nearing completion and standing astride the river like a concrete colossus. And here, Borman's helicopter camera delights in the contrast between this soulless grey edifice and the lush, verdant forest in the background. And I think there's this clear aesthetic link here with how Cameron visualises Hell's Gate uh, nestled within the jungle of Pandora. Uh, back at the Markham's apartment in the city, we find that Bill and Jean have become uh, have, been, have been searching for Tommy all of this time, and almost like scientists have built up an extensive collection of tribal accoutrements and related research. In the course of this detective work, Bill has hit upon a fresh lead as to Tommy's whereabouts, and he teams up with an incredibly cocky and facetious photographer for what resembles an Apocalypse Now-style river journey into the mysterious heart of tribal territory. And it's at this point that we cut right inside the deep jungle to find that a young lad called Tommy is now a 100% fully naturalised member of the Invisible People. Um, he's about 17 years old, so he's on the threshold of manhood. He speaks exclusively in the, in the tribe's language, and he's entirely steeped in its customs and traditions. So not long after we pick up Tommy's thread, uh, he undergoes a ritualistic ceremony for becoming a man. Uh, which requires him firstly to spend a whole night being covered in fire ants and secondly to inhale an extremely powerful psychoactive substance and as a result of that dose he mentally and imaginatively embarks on a vision quest which i guess is kind of a posh phrase for trip uh, in which he pictures himself as or pro pro projects himself into uh, an eagle soaring over the forest so it's this idea of mastery that he's absolutely kicked in as a senior member of the tribe and is to some extent part of the forest too. Now, um, extremely committed Avatar fans who've leached every bit of content off the collector's edition Blu-ray, like a bunch of uh, like a bunch of vampires, and I know you're out there. Uh, <laughs> will be yeah. <laughs> Likewise, will be aware that one of the most startling, or arguably the most startling, of the deleted scenes is the one known as Dream Hunt which uh, chronologically was meant to slot into the film after Neytiri paints Jake's body as part of his ceremony for becoming one with the Omatikaya. Uh, and what basically happens is that Jake inhales a smoke that's blown towards him from some kind of pipe, I think by Moat. Uh, the scene's not fully rendered, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's Moat. And then um, he eats a bioluminescent worm and then is stung twice by a scorpion-like creature that I think is brandished by Etukan. So he's, you know, nicely set up for this triple whammy of absolute, you know, psychoactive mayhem. And what really fascinates me about this <laughs> is that if this scene had made it through, uh, we'd have had this, you know, huge family friendly sci-fi blockbuster 
um, where halfway through the hero has a massive drug-induced hallucination and the film turns into a tool video for five minutes, <laughs> which is all completely tantalising. Um, but what happens uh, is that Jake goes on a vision quest and has a vision or precognition of the Toruk, uh, which he later commandeers in spectacular fashion. Now, when I discovered uh, this scene it basically sealed the deal for me that Avatar's soul and substance are rooted in the Emerald Forest. Uh, it was just completely undeniable. Uh, and it actually made me appreciate both films even more. Um, it's a great influence to pick, uh, I think, and I'm surprised Borman's film you know, isn't, isn't more influential because it really deserves to be. So back to the Emerald Forest. Um, after his, uh, his vision quest, Tommy pledges himself to uh, a young tribeswoman called Kachiri, uh, setting up the film's core romantic plot and you know obviously one can't help but wonder at the similarity of her name to that of a certain pandoran princess um uh, elsewhere in the jungle that night markham uh, and his and his photographer friend uh, set off a bunch of flares and fireworks to attract the attention of local forest dwellers and are promptly surrounded and marched off by a more aggressive rival tribe to the invisible people called the fierce people uh, led by the fearsome chief Chakeri, who turn out to be uh, cannibals. Um, relations very quickly go south, uh, and as the photographer is attacked, Markham shoots one of the fierce people dead. Uh, Jakari gives Markham a head start to run for his life, uh, and then the fierce people begin to hunt him down. Uh, and at this point, we have a lengthy scene of Markham running till dawn, essentially, through the forest alone and inexperienced. And I'd say that scene has a clear tonal link with Jake's first night in the Pandoran rainforest in Avatar. Uh, and that's after he's, um, you know, run off from the, the Thanator and got detached from the, the, the rest of the, the, the group that he was with. Uh, and that gives way to what I think is um, the most powerful scene in the film. Um, completely exhausted, uh, Markham arrives at Lagoon where Tommy has gone foraging and the two clap eyes on each other for the first time in a decade. And Borman plays the moment superbly, um, really teasing it out as father and son gaze at each other with initial incomprehension that, that slowly kind of, you know, it turns to realization. And there's um, an interesting element of this scene that proves pretty conclusively to me that the Emerald Forest has also had an influence on, on Avatar The Way of Water. Uh, so there's a brilliant image of Tommy uh, staring at Markham with bow at the ready behind a cascading uh, waterfall, uh, which um, uh, that was that that image was used on a number of uh, poster designs for the Emerald Forest. It's very striking, uh, and there's an eerie connection there with uh, the image in the Way of Water's trailer of the new character Spider pulling back on his bow while facing down some intruders uh, to the Pandoran Forest. Uh, you know, it's an, an absolutely unmistakable likeness there. Uh, which shows just how much Cameron, Cameron admires Borman's film. So after this uh, electrifying moment, uh, when father and son are reunited, Markham is uh, shot in the arm uh, with a fierce people arrow, and Tommy guides him to safety, bringing him to his village uh, following a spectacular pursuit through Whitewater Rapids. And uh, There's a clear tonal link there with Jake's escape from Tha the Thanator in, in Avatar. Um, during the pursuit, Jacari captures Markham's machine gun, uh, which is an important point. Um, at the Invisible People's village, uh, Markham immediately falls very ill uh, from poison in, in, in his arrow wound, and the tribe help him to rehabilitate while he's on. The, and what 
sorry, and the tribe help him to rehabilitate. rehabilitate. While he's on the mend, uh, Tommy is formally joined with Kachiri in a marriage ceremony. And while all of this is going on, the fierce people cut a deal with the owner of a brothel on a workers' compound linked to the dam project, promising to bring the workers tribal women in exchange for ammunition for Jakari's captured gun. Back at the village, uh, Markham shows his respect to the invisible people by taking their psychoactive. Uh, he's instantly plunged into his own vision quest, and while he's hallucinating, the tribe carry him away from the village and deposit him on the edge of a construction site somewhere near the dam, where he's found by a bulldozer and a group of workers. Uh, while this was an action that the invisible people took for their own protection, when they return to the village, they find it burned, its elders dead, and its women gone, including Tommy's beloved Kachiri. Um, following a ceremony to mourn the dead, the invisible people head off to track the women through the forest, and on the way they come across a massive man-made clearing, with the almost complete dam lurking ominously in the background. Uh, they finally realise just how far the outsiders have encroached on their territory. Um, and there's, you know, huge resonance there with the scene in Avatar when Jake and Neytiri witness a large clearing in the Pandoran forest the morning after they've made love. Once the invisible people reach the brothel at the workers' compound, they get into a very one-sided fight with the fierce people, during which Tommy's adoptive father, Chief Wandi, is fatally wounded. And this, of course, is all thanks to Jacari's captured gun. At daybreak, Tommy heads out of the forest and strikes out for the city by rowing boat uh, with the aim of enlisting Markham's help, which he does by climbing up the outside of the family's high-rise and letting himself in. Uh, interestingly, he susses out the apartment's location by taking a psychoactive substance in a local slum and going on another vision quest. Uh, at the apartment, he finally has an emotional reunion with his mother. At night, Markham returns to the forest uh, in a jeep with Tommy and a small group of armed men heading for, the, heading for the workers' compound, where the invisible people's women are now being pimped. Uh, in a firefight at the brothel uh, with assorted workers and members of the fierce people, Tommy and Markham free the women. Uh, at dawn, Markham realises that Tommy belongs with the invisible people in the forest, and in a huge change of heart, and you know this just goes to show how, how his character has, has kind of completely moved on, um, uh, Markham resolves to blow up the dam, but Tommy tells him that the power of nature could bring it down. Um, after some toing and froing on this, Markham and Tommy hug, and Markham bids his son farewell. Later, at the Invisible People's Village, Tommy is anointed as the tribe's leader. And then we're on to the spectacular climax. So, at night, Tommy goes on another psychoactives fueled vision quest, and the forest is hit by a torrential storm. There's a bit of ambiguity around this, in the sense that the film invites us to make up our own minds as to whether Tommy's hallucination has summoned the storm, or whether it's a coincidence. Um, but over at the dam, Markham orders an evacuation, uh, citing dangerous water levels and once everyone's gone he plants a series of explosives uh, along a tunnel in the structure's wall uh, and at the very point he's about to press the button on his bomb trigger a lightning strike shears off part of a crane um, and when it when it comes to land it snaps the wire connecting the trigger to the bombs uh, but then Markham hears a deep rumble and looks on as a huge river flood smashes through the dam completely destroying it so Tommy was right after all, and the power of nature had what it took to bring the dam down. Uh, I would definitely say that the cleansing and cathartic scenes of the workers being evacuated and the dam being destroyed share a pretty direct kinship 
uh, with the scenes near the end of Avatar when the RDA Mining Corporation is defeated and the humans are sent packing. Um, the film ends with Tommy and his tribe playing in a rock pool near the village, uh, which has a lot of resonance actually with the Avatar deleted scene New Life, uh, where we see the Omatakaya at play in a Pandoran lagoon enjoying a life of peace, with Jake stroking Neytiri's pregnant belly. However, just before the Emerald Forest end credits roll, it leaves us with the following caption. Um, the rainforests of the Amazon are disappearing at a rate of 5,000 acres per day. Four million Indians once lived there, 120,000 remain. A few tribes have never had contact with the outside world. They still know what we have forgotten. So, yeah, I mean, what I hope people have gathered from that is that The Emerald Forest is a, a pretty powerful film. And, um, you know, I'd suggest that uh, that Jake Sully in Avatar is almost like, you know, what would happen if you took Tommy and Markham and combined them into the same character. Um, you know, Tommy and Markham appear to represent the two sides of Jake's persona. So we have the, you know, the kind of company man on the one hand and the free spirit on the other. And um, I think the Emerald Forest is, um, you know, such an important uh, reference point because it's steeped in the same kind of, you know, righteous indignation that fuels and informs Avatar. Um, I mean, you know, by the end, Markham is, you know, clearly consumed by this massive disgust, which I think includes self-disgust at how the meddling of industry has blighted the lives of the rainforest's indigenous population and played the invisible people um, and fierce people off against each other. And, you know, when you look at Avatar, um, a very similar sense of disgust and righteous indignation is evoked uh, all the way through the build-up to execution and aftermath of uh, the attack on Home Tree, which is presented very frankly as an act of genocide against a significantly less well-resourced community. You know, um, I mean, you know, this, this, you know, not wanting to put too fine a point on it, this isn't Thanos snapping his fingers and a few principal characters turning into sawdust and most of the outcome happening off screen. You know, I mean, the attack on Home Tree is right up in your face as a callous attempt to wipe out a people who are standing in the way of a prized mineral. Um, and, you know, I guess this is, why I, this is why I find Avatar so compelling as a kind of platform or sandbox or perhaps even a gym for, you know, working through a bunch of issues about what human beings are really doing to other human beings. Um, you know, if we think about that, that closing caption of the Emerald Forest, well, you know, that film was made in 1985 or released in 1985. So, you know, that's, that's it's almost 40 years old. Um, and, you know, we're still dealing with this sort of stuff now uh, and if you look back over the past five years or so of uh, heavy industries treatment of indigenous peoples it's an absolute horror show um, you know probably the most famous recent example um, was Rio Tinto's move in 2020 to blow up the Juchen Gorge heritage site in western Australia uh, which was a set of sacred aboriginal cave systems first used 46,000 years ago and that was to procure a certain high quality type of iron ore. Uh, and then more recently, we had the killings in Brazil of British journalist Dom Phillips and indigenous peoples expert Bruno Pereira, who'd been looking into what's happening to indigenous communities in the rainforest amid the policies of the Bolsonaro regime. So, you know, I really think that 
the way Avatar channels these issues and provides a space for, you know, working them through uh, in the guise of a sci-fi blockbuster is tremendously effective. You know, I mean, you, you don't see any Marvel films doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's definitely something. This always comes up, and I, I hate to be the one who sort of sounds like I'm ragging on Marvel because I, I do get enjoyment out of Marvel, but I don't get the same level that I do for, from something like Avatar. Because it's uh, on on it's trying to do something on a different level, and I think you've described it perfectly. And your your explanation for the Emerald Forest is incredible, like pointing out all these different aspects. And I want to go back to a couple of them because I think they're just so interesting. Um, in particular, uh, with regards to the ending, with um, how uh, Tommy does his his like last spirit journey to like call for the rain i think that's so similar to jake when he connects to um the tree of souls and calls for aowa to help and yeah then there's the arrival of nature in both films like yeah this yeah is, yeah this yeah, is absolutely. literally yeah. this is an, if this isn't a sign to be like hey look nature has stepped in and done what it needs to do yeah yeah, and it, and it's. I think that that that's the the whole message that nature is always kind of bigger than us, you know. Uh, and if it doesn't want us around, it will tell us. <laughs> you know? uh, I think yeah, it's obviously that you know you've got Borman uses a, a kind of a, a giant river flood, uh, and Cameron goes for you know all of the all of the beasts uh, of of the the jungles in the air just swarming over um, the RDA and and kind of completely you know outnumbering them and uh, and and you know outmaneuvering them uh and it, it's it's very much the same kind of the same kind of euphoric rush in pretty much exactly the same part of the the, the film you know um if you look if you kind of look looked at the 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 kind of the you know the the, the time the time code on each one you'd have <laughs> you know that, that, that those two events would occur pretty much exactly the same point in each story um and i find that uh yeah it is fascinating Another thing I thought was really interesting was um, you said you mentioned how um, his dad does his own spirit quest, and during his one, he takes the form of uh, I think as a cheetah or a leopard, who jumps into one of the um, <laughs> one of the bulldozers and attacks someone. And I thought that image was fantastic because again, it's so similar to Jake when he wakes up and and the bulldozer is like about to crush <laughs> across like crush them and he's attacking the bulldozer immediately and i thought that was again another one of those similarities which cameron just reinterprets in a different way because obviously he's taken these two characters and found a middle ground for them to create jake sully and i think he's done a fantastic job of of creating that middle ground to be like okay he's understanding the difference between the between his life and the life his son now leaves yep yep yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's the that that's so such a crucial moment in Avatar because I think that's the the moment that signals that Jake has fully planted his feet in the the Armatikaya's camp. You know, that it, it's the it's the moment where he kind of it's the it's the tipping point essentially. Um, it's the point where he it fit, you know physically aggresses against his own masters. You know, and. Uh, uh, and I think that the, the whole way that 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 scene is played is is brilliant because um, you know you, you've got him uh, you know eating breakfast with the the you know with Grace and Norm in, in the in the shack 
uh, where where the link pod is, and uh, you know, in in his in his human body, and you've got Neytiri kind of absolutely freaking out because they're just about you know they're both about going to get mashed by a bulldozer, and and Jake's avatar body is asleep in the middle of the forest. And so you have this kind of you know hurried scene where he's 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 trying to pack breakfast away as quickly as possible so you can dive back into the forest, and I mean that that tells you so much of where his heart really lies because Jake you know he ha- Grace is having to force him to basically eat breakfast to keep his human body going while he's linked up, uh, and, and and he just wants to he just wants to get in there as as as, as you know quickly as he possibly can, uh, and then when he wakes up it's like oh you know. I've I've got a, I've got a job to do, and it's like he, he has this, almost like this kind of um, you know the his his limbic brain, you know the kind of the, the 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 primal part of his brain just goes, you know, completely goes ping, and he he thinks okay I've got to bash this bulldozer with a rock, uh, and it's it, yeah it, it's uh, it, I think that's when he kind of um, uncorks his own you know pent up aggression against um, all of the the you know the things that have been bothering him about his assignment <laughs> yeah because that's like the first real sign that he, he's actually taken the step on along that line yeah because he has been towing that line the whole way through the film at that point he is one foot in each camp and now he's had he's forced he's forced, he's, to, he's, make he's a forced choice. to make a decision yeah 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 and uh it, it's a brilliant um set of circumstances you know dramatically i think that, that that cameron picks in which to in which to kind of signal that that tipping point um and uh you know it, it's brilliantly done as well in terms of how you've got the cross cutting um back to uh what's going on in hell's gate where you've got the dude who's in charge of the bulldozer essentially by remote control which is you know, also kind of one of those things that sort of fills you with righteous indignation, you know, that this bulldozer is being driven by some, you know, some jerk in an office <laughs> you know, with, with a kind of desktop joystick. Uh, and, and you know, so there's that sense of uh, the, the RDA's remoteness, you know, that they're kind of physical and moral remoteness from what they're doing. Um, and, and that they, they have got absolutely no connection with the importance of this uh sacred tree site that the bulldozer is ramming into and at that point when jake wakes up in in his avatar body and sees the bulldozer coming he he absolutely understands you know the importance of, of the site and you know I mean, it's where he spent the night after making love with natiri and it's it's where they you know chose to uh you know connect connect the you know their cues up to the, the the tree so they could you know commune with with the ancestors and all this sort of stuff and it, it, he under, he understands how important it is and you know it's sort of in the very fiber of his bones and uh and and that's the uh that's the point where he's had enough um and i think yeah probably in the emerald forest it, it, it that 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 moment is uh where you know when markham goes on his own vision quest uh that's that's also the moment where he slightly you know starts to turn against what he's what he's been doing you know um and then he reaches his tipping point uh, his his true tipping point you know much more towards the end i actually love the idea that he um, that, that his explosives don't go off you know? yeah i think that's so fantastic um because it would have been such a i feel like that's a hollywood ending for the father sacrifices himself uh in a dramatic <laughs> explosion <laughs> but instead it is his, his choice is 
ignored. He do- he didn't have a choice in the end. You know, whatever he did, it wouldn't have mattered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I- instead of him being the guy who who you know sort of makes this uh, this this kind of uh, he- heroic statement of, of a sort of an explosion, it, it's he he ends up seeing that his 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 son may have been right. You know, all, all of this all of this time. You know that 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 uh, and that that he you know he kind of gets the idea that. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's a way of conveying um, to him uh, how connected the tribe is with the natural world uh, and how detached you know his own community is. Um... So I think um, you made a really good point as well, uh, which is to do with the way of water and yeah. the fact that uh, Spider and Tommy have seem to have some similarities. Oh yes. Now, obviously, we are. This is all speculation we're going to go into at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there could be other things from the Emerald Forest which we could see come come in, into play in um, The Way of Water. And yeah. one of the ones that I think might be most interesting is the idea of there being a, another clan who maybe not work together with the RDA, but yeah. are t- take, a, uh, take their side in, in a way. Yeah, I, I think um, that's one of the things that we that we didn't see in the first one because when Jake um, does his kind of whistle stop tour uh, <laughs> and kind of rounds up local clans for the you know kind of the big clash at the end, uh, he you know that they all they all join him. He doesn't kind of have any pushback from uh, any other clans, and we just sort of get the impression that the uh, that the clans kind of work together and that they're all sort of uh, you know mutually and uh, you know su- supportive. Um, but I think that, you know, we're probably heading into, uh, you know, a, a kind of a story where, you know, we end up with marriages of convenience, um, and that, uh, you know, that, that, that there may be, there may well be clans who, um, are prepared to sell out the, uh, you know, the Sullies. Um, and I think that's, that's going to be, a, a, you know, a, a really big deal actually, um, because I think it, it, it um, that that probably needs to be introduced into the drama if you're going to be telling this larger story over four films um, to have you know people kind of um, you know sort of swapping sides and, um, uh, and and that kind of intrigue I think is is probably quite essential. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, I it will be it will be interesting to see how that how that plays out. Yeah, I think that's going to be a really interesting aspect because obviously they can't just have it be the same story of, oh, the RDA are back, <laughs> try to mine Onotanium or something else in this case. Uh, because... I mean, it looks to me like the RDA is going to be coming after everything um, because they're they're going to be building a city. So you know this this thing this this place uh, Bridgehead, uh, which is their new HQ. Um, it, apparently it's just going to it's going to have a massive 3d printing factory that's going to be spewing out loads of weapons and and you know i, I just get the end the idea that they're going to come for everything that you know, they're going to need an awful lot of uh, they're going to need an awful lot of stuff to kind of substantiate all of that that production and and to actually you know sort of build the the city in the first place um and uh, i mean it looks like an, an, an enormous city because that, that very small um shot of it that you get the kind of the overhead shot of uh, of bridgehead in the in the in the way of water trailer um there's a monorail you know i mean it's got this like a kind of a public transportation system which is something that you know hell's gate didn't have that you know so this place is obviously going to be vast um 
so I think the you know necessarily the uh, the the RDA are going to have to probably cover an awful lot more territory, um, and you know I think there there probably will be kind of bits of under the table um, and probably even over the table kind of bartering going on, and um, yeah, that's um, that 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 side of things. I mean, it's just one of those side of things you kind of you can see it. You can you 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 know you can see that it's 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 got to happen. You know, there's got to be that kind of uh, uh, that 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 element of kind of intrigue and duplicity uh sort of sewn into the sequels but it's like oh my god this is going to be so painful <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh it, it feels it feels like we're building up to a uh at some point there is not going to be a happy ending for one of these films yeah yeah uh, yeah as as you can imagine because this is just how <laughs> filmmaking works you yeah. can't have all happy endings because otherwise yeah, you know what absolutely. to expect yeah I mean, Cameron has actually said. I think in the in the Empire interview, he said that uh, that things do get really dark. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, you know, I trust Cameron. If he says it's dark, it's yeah, gonna be dark. It's gonna be. Really he doesn't dark. shy away. <laughs> he, he'll push that like twelve A rating to its limits. I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> now, I did want to speak one other thing about uh, Spider and. Uh, sort of the relation to uh, Tommy as a character, and especially that moment where Tommy sees his dad again for the first time. Yeah, yeah. I think, as you said with the teaser, it's very similar shot, and it makes yep. me again. This is once again a speculation thing. We mm. don't know who Spider's parentage is within the film. There has I've been got, speculation. I've got a slight idea what that might be. <laughs> yeah, do you? Is this is this from like well, just from discussions with it, other people? Not, no, no. It, it's it's just from kind of just looking at the coverage essentially mm-hmm. um i mean do you want me to voice my oh go for it this is uh, you know everything I, we I, say got... here nothing is confirmed we are just okay. speculating yep. well i i get the feeling that quaritch is his dad this is what i thought as well and i think it makes thematic sense in terms of um and i've got a feeling that shot of him pulling that bow and arrow I think that's him facing hit Quaritch as in his avatar body. So I think that's, you know, it's it's a shot for shot replica. Yeah, it might be the case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it's if it's the same kind of thing, you know, father meets son, but it might be the case that that Spider doesn't know that Quaritch is his dad at that point and Quaritch doesn't know that Spider is his son at that point. Absolutely. Because he might have had this kind of you know, one night stand or something with, um, uh, you know, a lady on the, on, on the Hell's Gate compound and then, you know, died before he actually realised what the, you know, the, the the outcome of that was. And, and you know, he's been brought up, Spider's been brought up um, by the by the Sullies. Uh, I, I mean, he might initially have been brought up for a little while by, by his mother. Um, but at some point um, ended up being kind of, you know, adopted. But I, I mean, I don't know whether his... I, I haven't seen anybody listed in the cast who I think could be Spider's mother. So I don't know whether she, you know, whether she's deceased by the time the story starts or something. But, um, uh, but you know, it, it, the idea that, 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 that Spider would have been brought up by the Sullies and <laughs> you've got Quaritch who's now in a in a... In a, in a you know uh, an avatar body a militarized version of an of an avatar body um i mean the the, the potential for uh, some pretty deep drama is uh, is is vast <laughs> 
this is it. It feels like uh, with The Way of Water, we've got so much potential in terms of which way this story can go. And there's so much speculation at the moment of what, what's going to happen. And it, it excites me in that sense that if we see stories like this play out, stories with Quaritch uh, uh, and Kira and... The you know, Kira thing is absolutely fascinating. Like, I mean, it's, 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 I mean it's, it's almost like... That having that having the kind of the quaritch, I mean, assuming the quaritch and spider thing is an actual thing, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, as if it is a yeah, thing. Yeah, let's just assume for a moment that it is a thing. I mean, if we've got that as a thing, um, and then you know we've got this this other thing, which is the you know the the the, the Kira thing, which is the, the you know the teenage uh, Navi who who is is uh, imbued with the potentially with the, the the spirit and the soul of of, of Grace. I mean, this is cool stuff. <laughs> you know. Yeah, because it gets into all these ideas of like reincarnation and things like this, which is something like, wow, why are we even? How how did Cameron even think to like want to cover this? Uh, but obviously, like he's got four films to talk all about this these ideas. So why not just cover everything? Yeah, it, it's almost like he's deliberately um, putting into this one ideas that are weirder uh, or slightly more. Um, you know, sort of left field or, or 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 kind of more dramatically challenging than than the uh, than what you have in the first one because I think the first one is is kind of very much set up along kind of lines of oppositionality. You know, you've got the the, the guys with the, the the hardware, and then you've got the, the you know the guys in the forest, and and you know that that the, there's that there's that um, uh, you know the brilliance of the the film is that the, you know the I think there was like two different design teams. So, you know, like one, one bunch of people hand, handled all of the hardware and one bunch of people handled all of the, the you know, the, 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 the kind of Navi stuff. And, and, and then you've got, you know, you see so kind of, you put that kind of clear blue water between those worlds. And uh, so it's, it's very much, it's kind of binary, you know, there's a, it's sort of a, Avatar is, is very, it's got that kind of binary thing. Um, and then, you know, the, the, all of this stuff about, Okay, well, we're going to maybe have this reincarnation thing, and we're going to have this, you know, this 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 father and son who don't know that they're father and son yet, kind of thing. Potentially, um, it, it's it's a kind of a, it's it's eroding, and and then also if you if you add in, you know, potentially clans who might not necessarily be on the side of the, you know, the the the, the Sully family you know you've you've got sort of an erosion of the barriers of oppositionality you know you've got a kind of a breakdown of that binary thing and it's kind of like more of a a mix of competing interests and um you know i i which i think is probably you know it's quite game of thrones like in a way you know um uh but i i think that's that that's that's really that's an interesting direction to kind of push things in um uh you know following the kind of the you know the, the quite sort of binary uh aspects of the first one you know sort of have this have, have everything become a bit murkier yeah i think that's it and i think again where, where i mentioned earlier about how avatar feels like the prequel is the setup it gets all the the boring stuff out the way in a way of here's who your characters are here's what the planet is so now we could just get into the way of water and explore these ideas, which you could never do in a in a in not all these ideas in a singular film. And he's got four films to now explore so many different ideas that he's always wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, th I think it's just an opportunity to kind of really kind of crack the world building open wide, um, because if you've got off on that brilliant foundation uh, of the first one, which is you know 
pretty rigorously detailed um, uh, in, in its own right. Um, but but you know that there is the uh, there is the you know the issue that it is that you know the kind of the area of Pandora that we explore is very much you know the kind of the the, the immediate vicinity of where the Omatakaya uh, live, and you know where they, where they kind of you know later um, uh, uh, kind of re retreat to after the attack on Home Tree. Um, so you've got you've got the the opportunity to go a lot wider. Uh, on the actual area in which this takes place and um, you know obviously if they're, if they're going to have to the Sully family are going to have to break away at some point um, I mean I assume that you know when, when we see the uh, you know the, the, the shots of them uh, flying on their banshees um, down the coastline um, in the in the trailer I assume that by that point they're, they're fugitives you know and they're, they're, they seem like they're people who are escaping from something you know and i mean jake doesn't look very happy yeah <laughs> you know, when, when we see him he's got that kind of um that kind of brown um you know it's kind of cowl on uh, the, or that that kind of shirt on um and he just looks very sort of haunted um so yeah i i think that uh the the, the whole idea of them having to range out a lot further uh, and to kind of get away from where they are um that is going to kind of lead a, lead us into a much wider um, approach to the world building. Awesome. Is there any final thoughts you have on the Emerald Forest that you'd maybe suggest, maybe to convince people to explore it if they, uh, if they've had listen and fancy it a little bit more now? Yeah, I mean, I just think that um, it's it's a it's an underrated film. Um, it's a, it's a very um, mesmerizing film actually uh i think the combination of the visuals and the music i mean i think the, the music is fantastic um and uh you know if you're into stuff like you know michael mann's last of the mohicans um you know you'll definitely love the emerald forest um it's it's got actually the two films have got a very similar vibe so yeah I, i'd say um it's it's a it's a lost classic in a way you know it's one of those films that i think should be um, brought up for reassessment and, uh, and and you know I think a lot of a lot of people should uh, uh, pay a lot more attention to it um, I mean it, it's strange because uh, John Borman films you've got you've got John Borman films that um, people just completely throw their weight behind um, like point blank I mean point blank is like everybody pretty much acknowledges that that's a classic and, and it's always on you know lots of best of lists Um uh, and it's you know it absolutely exudes this guy's um, you know visual clout. Uh, you know he really really knows what he's doing. Um, but then there are other ones that are, you know not not quite as they don't have you know such such good reputations or you know they're not they're not as as sort of critically um, acclaimed. Uh, but I think um, the Emerald Forest uh, really deserves to be uh, thought of uh, a lot a lot sort of. I mean it's not you know it's not I, I haven't seen much stuff that's kind of you know hugely you know, directly negative about it, but it's kind of, you know, it, it's one of those things, it, it's one of those films that doesn't have a really big presence. Uh, and I think that it should have a much bigger presence than it does. 
Yeah, I had a little look on Letterboxd and I noticed that it had like only like 400 reviews, which is crazy to me. Um, you know, it's very low and I was kind of shocked. Um, I'll be honest though, I, before you brought it up to me, this isn't a film that I'd heard of, it, but I'm so glad that I've now visited it and I've got a copy of DVD, which means I could just revisit it again and again. And I've got a feeling like post Way of Water, I'm going to watch it again because I've just got this feeling. I've got this feeling it's coming back. So um, if you're happy to post Werewater, we will do a second episode of this uh, and see what lay, lays ahead. See if sure, the yeah, and yeah. Werewater see, have a connection. Yeah, let, let's see if um, if 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 Cameron is um as as uh you know extracted more influence from the uh, the Emerald Forest as part of the uh, as part of the the sequels. Um, yeah, that'd be a, a, a fascinating uh, uh yeah, it'd be fascinating to take a look at. Um, yeah, I, I'd love to come back anytime. <laughs> of course. Uh, I do have a feeling, though, that if he does it again in, in, in The Way of Water, I don't think we'll be able to mine much more from it for three, four, and five. <laughs> yeah, uh, he'll yeah. probably run out of things <laughs> to try. <laughs> um, yeah, so th- that's about it for us for this episode. Um, where's the best place for people to find you? Uh, at MJP Writer uh, on Twitter. And um, yeah, come and say hi. Uh, you know, if you're an avatar geek who's looking for another avatar geek to connect with, I'm right here. <laughs> and uh, for me, the best place to find us is Twitter at AvatarPod. And it's been a pleasure having you on. Honestly, it's been such Thanks a fantastic so talk. I've this loved is, it. I feel like I've learned so much, and uh, awesome. I've now got such a long list of other films to explore for it, regards to the influences of Avatar. Oh, fantastic! Um, but that, I, I mean, this is fantastic for me because I, I want to learn as much as I can. Oh. Well, I'm, I'm absolutely, you know, that's made my day. Thanks so ah. much. <laughs> uh, so thank you everyone for having a listen. Uh, catch you all again soon. Goodbye. <laughs>